All right. Good morning, everybody. We'll get started now. Make your way to your seats and grab your Bibles. Turn to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. So you got to grab your seats and grab your Bibles. Revelation 21. We only have two chapters left. After a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study through the book of the Revelation. Two chapters to go. Now we'll ask the Lord for his help and his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you that this is something important to you. You said that you would give a blessing to those who study and read and hear these words and take them to heart. We're all open to receiving that blessing, Lord, as we put your word into practice this very morning. Open our eyes of our understanding and and help us to make sense of these beautiful pictures and words of this eternal city that you have prepared for those who love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he sat at supper and... uh, for Passover, the very last time. And there were some pretty heavy things to discuss as we talked about even earlier. Uh, The disciples had just had that big argument, so they had to be kind of schooled in the way of true greatness. And Jesus taught them about uh, how to serve others and uh, the true meaning of greatness in humility and servitude. Uh, And he talked about his great love for them and that he would be going away for a while and that the world would be happy about it, but that they would be filled with grief. And they talked about some heavy-duty things for sure, uh, but they also spoke of some very encouraging things as well. And Jesus brought up heaven Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled there that night at the table. He said, you believe in God, believe in me too. That's an amazing thing to say. He said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would tell you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know, Thomas just said, Uh, Lord, you just said you're going away. We're upset because we don't know where you're going and we don't know how to get there. And he said, Thomas, my friend, listen, you do actually know the way because you know me and I am the way. And so there won't be any problem there. And so he talked about this place in his father's house that he's preparing uh, for us And for 2,000 years, the church had been thinking about this place called the Father's House or the New Jerusalem, it's sometimes called, or also heaven. This is the place where Jesus went to prepare a place for us. Uh, 1 Peter, rather, chapter 1, blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercies, called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Listen to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Kept in heaven. Something is kept in heaven for us. There's a father's house. There's a place. There's a room. 
And really the idea there's an estate there for you. There's a throne. There are crowns. We've been hearing all about it. He puts it in front of us. As um, Solomon wrote, he has put eternity into man's hearts. We've been created and, and we know. Nobody has to tell us that life doesn't stop when the heart stops beating. We know there's something more because God put it in, into the souls of men. Well, time has come to talk about the Father's house and to see a description of the place that Jesus has gone to prepare for us. Not only to see this magnificent description of the Father's house, this bejeweled city that's going to come down from heaven, but also a little bit of the life, the quality of life that goes on inside. Uh, we have come to the end of God's prophetic map. Well, we can't see any further than Revelation 21 and 22. That's all that God has chosen to reveal to us. It's called the eternal state, or we call it heaven. But it's as far as we know. And phase one of eternity closes out there. And phase two begins. But that story begins when we see him face to face, and we'll hear about all the marvelous things he has in store for the eternities and the eternities to come. And so uh, where we are in context, if you've just joined us, there's, I have the kind of the order of where we've been following in the book, and we come to the end of the road, but it began with the Lord coming for his church and something that we call the rapture. That was chapter 4. And then... Um, Chapter 6 through 18, the Lord judges the Christ-rejecting world in something called the Great Tribulation. And then in chapter 19, the Lord comes with his church. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2, so easy. He says, when Christ appears, so will you appear. Just a little one-line sentence that should change the way you think about Christ's return. Because when he appears, the Bible says, we shall be with him, his faithful followers. Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, he returns with the church. 17, 14, Revelation, Colossians 3 and 2. And, and so the Lord comes with his church. And, the, and then we see the establishing of something called the millennial kingdom because it's a thousand years long. Six times, uh, Revelation 20 tells us that it's a thousand year reign. That's when the wonderful counselor, almighty God, the everlasting father and the prince of peace takes the throne David's throne and reigns for a thousand years where tanks and swords are, are smelted down to become agricultural tools, where the lion and the lamb lay down together and there's perfect peace. You can close those doors or close, I don't mean this bad, the mouth of the baby. <laughs> either. I didn't, I love babies. I had three of them and hope to have more through them. <laughs> And all the grandmas said, Amen. Amen. Now, the Lord, where were we? Establishing grandchildren? And that's number five. The Lord comes with his church. And the Lord establishes that earthly reign. It's just going to be wonderful. And real quick, it's just the, sur the saved survivors of Armageddon world. 
They go into this kingdom saved. They're, they're somewhat changed. They populate the world that's been renewed to sustain life again. And the, the church and its perfected bodies and uh, minds, we rule and reign that world over human beings with flesh and blood. And at the end of that time, the nasty one is released And he tests those born in that kingdom because they've never had an opportunity. They've only outwardly complied. God doesn't know, you know, let me see who's who. And so he tests. And as far as the eye can see, there's a big rebellion. That is quashed. So the last thing we saw was the great white throne judgment that took care of all the evil dead from Cain all the way until the end. They had been waiting in a place called Hades. Revelation 20 says Hades uh, was resurrected in front of the great white throne. We saw this last week. And everybody was judged according to their deeds outside of Christ, outside of grace, outside of atonement. Everything was uncovered. And then all of that was thrown, unfortunately, into the lake of fire, which we saw. And so the lake of fire was the very last thought of the last chapter And so we're about to uh, see that God is done now with sin and the devil and any flesh and blood. No more sin, no more imperfection, no more weakness, none of that, including the earth. He's just done with the whole thing, and he's going to push it aside now and make room for what we call heaven. And so let's start reading at 21. Then, which means right after the great white throne judgment, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will be with them. He will dwell with them. Uh, They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain or cell phones for the old... Oh, you don't see it in English, but in the Greek... I, I promise you, it's in all caps. <laughs> Not. <laughs> all right. For the old order of things has passed away. He who, has, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Well, phew, here we are. We made it past all that smoke and fire and brimstone. And uh, if you're taking notes, number one, the new heavens and the new earth. I like what commentator Moffat said about this. He said, from the smoke and the pain and the heat, it is a real relief to pass into the clear, clean atmosphere of the eternal morning where the breath of heaven is most sweet And the vast city of God sparkles like a diamond in the radiance of his presence. Amen? It's a real joy to get here, to have that breath of fresh air. 
So once again, my first thing that I saw when I was reading this, once again, the life we're all craving, the person we want to be, the society we long for, the salvation of our souls, the perfection we hunger for, has to come down to us from God. That's a big deal. Because human, humanism says it's all about us. We look within. We like what we see. We think we can. We think we can. We think we can. We're the little train that thought he could, but then was overturned on the tracks there because he could, really couldn't do it. Heaven has to come down to us. We couldn't be good enough. We couldn't fix the problem. We couldn't save ourselves, much less the planet, from its bondage of de- decay, the futility and frustration under which it labors a curse. You see, we look up, heaven comes down. Our Savior Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 38, I have come down from heaven to save you, to give my life as a payment for your sins. You know, people tell me all the time when I'm arguing about Christianity or shall I say debating, debating about it, you know, they say, just look within, man. I've looked within. It's scary. (laughs) What are you telling me to find salvation looking within? You know what Jesus said in Matthew uh, chapter 12? He said, from the abundance of the heart, the lips speak. And he said, from the heart comes All lying, theft, sexual immorality, lust, greed, and foolishness. That's what God the Son said is in me. Paul the Apostle, Romans chapter 7, says, you know what? When I look within, outside of the Holy Spirit, I find nothing good. You see, salvation, help, perfection, deliverance, healing, satisfaction, Uh, quenching of the thirst, it all must come down to you. Religion is man's attempt to climb up the ladders to go get it. Christianity is heaven opening up, freely giving to the undeserving what they do not earn in themselves but receive as a free gift. And so we saw this coming last chapter, chapter 20, at that ominous great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Did you remember from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and there was no place for them? We're talking about the condemned. There was no place for them because the, the, this earth and our skies and our solar system was going away to make room for heaven, the eternal state. And there was no place for them because that was gone, And the new heaven doesn't have room for people who are unrepented sinners. So there was no. So we saw this day coming. In fact, Peter says in 2 Peter 3, on that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt in flames. But we're looking forward to the new heavens and a new earth that he promised. Isaiah 65, put it this way. Behold, I am creating everything new heavens and a new earth, and no one will ever think, even think about the old one anymore. Be glad, rejoice forever in my creation, and look, I will create Jerusalem a place of happiness. 
Uh, I will rejoice over Jerusalem and delight in my people, and the sound of weeping and crying shall be heard no more. The word for God, the Lord uses here in Isaiah uh, 65, bara in the Hebrew, it means to create out of nothing. So in the same way the Lord created earth number one out of nothing, he is doing away with this earth. It is not redoing it. Certainly in the millennial kingdom, it had to be renewed. Take a look at it back in the chapters we come from, where it couldn't sustain life. But this time, he's doing away with anything that's been corrupted by sin. He's going to start all over again and create something brand new. You know, it's kind of like that show, Extreme Home Makeover. Uh, You know, I've used this before. You know, the first order of business is really out with the old, in with the new. And you know, when they go to those houses, they find the black mold. And they say, this is the reason your kid is sick. And say, the termites are rotting those boards. And you've got a death trap there. And you know what's that leak in the foundational wall, and there's some kind of dangerous gas. And this place is not needing a remodel. You need to take that whole thing out and away and create something new. And that's kind of the idea. They get rid of the entire unsound structure and begin anew. And you know what? Have you ever wondered what that must have looked like in Job 38? It talks about Job kind of got a little uh, attitude with the Lord, and then the Lord got an attitude with him and said, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world, big guy? You know, uh, where you must have been busy while I was hanging the earth where it was going, you know. But he said, back in those days when I centered its foundation and when the morning stars sang for joy... We will be in nothingness as the condemned stand before the great white throne and the old, this earth goes away with the sky. And then we will watch him. We will watch the new creation happen. We are alive and well, and we are able. We are in our new bodies. We will see this beautiful, wonderful creation. It's just going to be Uh, a jaw-dropping experience. By the way, the word for heavens is used. The one word is used in three different ways. The blue sky where birds fly, the night sky where the stars streak by, and the place where God lives. And in this case, when God is making new heavens, he's making the blue sky and the night sky. He's already in his heaven and doesn't need to be remodeled in any way. Uh, In fact, it speaks to that. The kainos in the Greek, uh, the new earth, is not the new in time. It's the new in quality. So it's not, he's not saying the the next earth. He's saying the better, improved, fresh in character, the, the different than the other. Now, I think everybody likes to move into a new home. I don't know anybody like to move into a new home. Uh, Not really. Okay, great. (laughs) Just keep your old home. (laughs) That's all right with me. Uh, uh, I guess it depends where you're moving, right? So let's all pretend you're moving up to to a really nice area into a mansion. Now, let me ask the question. Everyone likes moving into a new home, amen? (laughs) I thought so. 
Well, you know, at the end of that show, they have a big, ginormous bus, and it's blocking what they did with the house, right? And they say, bus driver, what do they say? Now, I'm going to make you all say it, or we're not going any further. Ready? (laughs) Bus driver. And then they go crazy. They go crazy. They drop to their knees. They fall over. They faint. They pass out. They cry. They scream. They jump up and down. They, they use God's name in vain, or they pray to God and praise God's name. They just go crazy because this is like, are you kidding me? Well, the new city measures, and I'm jumping ahead a little, 1,500 miles high, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, and it's bejeweled, and it's awesome. It's as big as the moon, a city. What is he going to say, bus driver? Move that planet. (laughs) It's going to be amazing. And so we get a little bit of this. First of all, he says, by the way, I looked there and I didn't see any sea. Well, three quarters of our old earth, this one slated for the cosmic um, junkyard, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) no offense to the earth, but that's where it's going. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's not a good use of space. And, And the sea is also, the sea is associated with danger and fear and storms and separation. Uh, It doesn't mean that the earth won't have water. It means that there's a different arrangement concerning waters in the new earth. And um, I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be beautiful. Now he says, the Jerusalem above, down she comes like a beautiful bride. And, and that doesn't surprise me, uh, because the most beautiful thing a man will ever see is his bride coming down the aisle. And so that's the language, is saying it's, it's the best sight you can possibly ever imagine, and his mind goes right there, because it is. It's one of those pinch-me-am-I-dreaming moments. The bus has moved, whoa, and so has a lot of other things. <laughs> the bus has moved, and there you see this has been prepared. This is the place he prepared for you, he said. There's a place for you in what you're about to see. And so it's decked out, not just functionally, but adorned to be beautiful. And the first few things that you see are just wonderful. You see it's a location. It's a city. It's a real place. And so I believe there's a lot of symbolism going on, you know, but it doesn't mean that it's not a literal place. The temple in the Old Testament has a lot of symbolism inside, but you still have a physical temple, you see? So whenever uh, the Lord says, take out a measuring stick and measure this thing, it tells me that you better start thinking literal. He wants it measured. He wants you to see, see, it, it has substance to measure. He calls it holy. It's a holy city. Well, of course, through and through, you might think a holy is another word for holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, as in integrity, the fullness, complete devotion, complete right and good and true unto God. And then he says the essence is friendship with God. It's a place where God and man live together in perfect union, in perfect harmony. And then dad speaks, 
It's dad's house. Dad says, give me the microphone. He's sitting on the front porch of home. And he says, this is it, finally. I'm with my people, and they're with me. Welcome home. That, that is really the essence. And before they get to the bejeweled walls and the, and the shine and the gleam and the radiance and the garden-like uh, atmosphere inside, the best thing about it is, is that God is inside. This is the greatest glory of heaven, wrote Spurgeon, the ultimate restoration of what was lost in the fall. Quote, I do not think the glory of Eden lay in its grassy meadows or in the boughs bending with luscious fruit, but its glory lay in this, that the Lord God walked in the garden in the cool of the day in unbroken fellowship with man. This was Adam's highest privilege and that he had companionship with the Most High God. Those days are going to be restored and in the most tenderest ways. We're not in heaven yet. (laughs) But we are on our way where that phone will be in the lake of fire. (laughs) All right. The Lord God is there, and that is why it's home to us. And here's the tenderness. He says, you will feel his hand upon your face. God Almighty, touching you, comforting you. Just to look at him, just to see what he looks like. That's a big enough deal to me. Just to walk near him and get close to him. Just to hear what his voice sounds like. Just to see the color of his hair and the color of his eyes. Just to get near the one who could speak and the universe leaps into existence. Let alone him getting close enough to me to touch my face and be concerned about wiping the tears away. I say all the time, you know, I don't know. It just feels like I fall over and die, but that's impossible there. (laughs) Already did that. (laughs) I ended up there. But the new body that God will give us can withstand that kind of heat. And we're going to be able to take it. And he's going to touch our face. Now, there was a song back, I don't know, in the 80s, in the arm arms of the angel, of an angel. May you find comfort and fly away. And it's like, I was thinking that one day and I was thinking, don't give me no chump angel. I don't want to, what do I want? Some angel, I don't even, what's your name? What are you hugging me for? I don't know, who are you? Take me to the one who made you. Let's start with that. Let's start with the master of the universe. Who made me? Did you make me? No, I didn't make you. Then what are you hugging me for? I... <laughs> I want to be hugged by the God of the universe, and he's going to hug me, and he's going to hug you. And you, in that squeeze, there are no words. That's why when Paul went to heaven in 2 Corinthians 11, he got stoned, right, by rocks. (laughs) Well, I said he went to heaven and got stoned, and everyone's like, oh, yeah, whatever. I saw a couple of faces, I'm like, by rocks. 
he, he, he was there, and he said, the third heaven. Ah, the third heaven. Blue sky one, night sky two. The third heaven, God's presence. And he said, I saw things that are inexpressible. I heard things. There are no words. And furthermore, it's not permitted for me to tell. That's what's going to happen. It's just home. It's just a wonderful place. Let me, let me see this. When I think of home, I think of safety and love and peace and warmth and rest. And when some of you think of home, uh, you don't have that feeling. I did not in my, my home, but I did in my grandmother's home. And once a year or twice a year, we would go to this Victorian flat in Boston where we would spend a week, the most wonderful, magical place I've ever been in my life. It was home. And Grandma lived on the bottom flat, Victorian, antiques, beautiful. Everything was so cozy. It was like out of a magazine. You walk in, the smells and the, and the warmth and the love and the pinching of the cheeks. And my uncles had, had contests over at the end of the week. You had to vote for your favorite uncle. So they would spend the week spoiling us all, giving us money on the side. Now, don't tell Uncle Freddy I gave you this 20, you know. And, and so they'd take us to ice cream and there was no alcohol. Finally. No yelling and profanity and things being thrown across the room and 911 calls. But for a whole week, just the smell of the Christmas tree and everybody laughing and playing cards and upstairs was auntie and another uncle and cousins. And and that was Mecca for everybody and everybody came and gathered and there was food and fun and, and fireplace and the television going and you're just full and happy and protected and warm. Not a problem in the world. Not a problem in the world because I was home. As an adult, after they had moved out and passed away, all of them are gone. I pull up at that house when I'm in Boston, and I just stare with my mouth open and think what magic went on in that house because of its ability to touch the heart with love and warmth and hope and optimism and peace and rest. And I thought about that place here. That city, inside that city, when you walk through the gates, it's going to be that on a gabillion times steroids. (laughs) That's what we're looking for. No hurting, no sorrow, no grief, no funerals, no, no nothing. None of that stuff. And what a sad state for humanity when people start thinking, well... If there's no foolishness, no sin, no devil, no evil, no problems, no disease, no anxiety, no worry, what are we going to do there? Almost kind of a letdown, you know? Let Let me assure you, life works a lot better without all of the former things. You haven't seen what life should have been. Neither did Adam and Eve. All they got was two people. They didn't get a city. They got two people and then the fall. There's never been a city of community, of perfection. And we're going to see that happen.
Let's move on. By the way, the tears in heaven, some people say, and I love this quote, there's no ground, uh, there's no justification for imagining from this text that the saints will shed tears in heaven concerning failures of their former life on earth. The emphasis here is on the comfort of God, not on the remorse of God's people. Amen? All right, moving on. He said to me, it's done on the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So let's pause here. We saw the new heavens and earth come down, and the wonders have just been started to be described. And then God pulls back because he knows who's reading this. He knows that everyone has to make a choice, and he just can't help himself to give the same old invitation and the same old warning. So a new heaven and a new earth, but the same old invitation and warning. Because of his heart, the Lord loves us. The Lord proved that love. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, God our Savior wants all people to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, for God is not willing that anyone perish, but that everyone would come to repentance and be saved. That's God's heart. So he sees all this beautiful thing, and he just says, want to remind you, it's pretty easy to get in, and you really don't want to be shut out. That's what he's thinking right here. And how, is it, how easy is it to get in? He goes, all you need to do is a couple of things. One, are you thirsty? You've got to want to get in. Well, I'm not going to force anybody. I'm not going to break your arm and say, you've got to come in here. That's not going to happen. You're going to want it. You want to be thirsty for God. You want to be thirsting for the right thing. You want to be tired of sin and the devil and evil and this life and worldliness and breaking all the commandments and all of that. You've got to be done with that and thirsty for the new, for the right, for the true, for the holy, for Jesus. That's important. And then what you've got to do is gulp. Can you do that? Because I'll provide the living water. All I want you to say is, I thirst. And then you open your mouth, I'll pour it in, and you go, can you do that? Because you do have something to do, but you don't earn it. You receive it. He says, one thing you got to be is thirsty to the thirsty. I will give waters of life for free. And the word for free there is very interesting. It means undeserving. It's free. You don't deserve it. And so many Christians stumble with this. I feel so unworthy. Yeah, you're supposed to. Because guess what? You are. That's the gospel. You're supposed to feel that. You're unworthy. That's what the free gift of it. The second you start feeling, you know what? I am worthy. You know what? You're on the wrong train. Get off that train because you're not worthy. And uh, he is the one who is worthy and qualifies you to inherit all of this. He says, come, all who are thirsty, 
Come and buy, you who have no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. He says, why do you humans spend money on what is not bread and your labors on what does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Milk and wine are used as symbols. Milk, every, it's got everything you need. Does the body good, you know? It, you don't watch much TV and that's a good thing. <laughs> and wine, all the joy of this life. So it's with me, he says, all of this is with me, it's free, I don't charge a nickel, all you got to do is want it, receive it, be thirsty and drink. Charles Spurgeon said, what does a thirsty man do to get rid of his thirst? He drinks, he swallows. How hard can this be? Perhaps there is no better representation of faith in all the word of God than that. To drink is to receive. To take in the freshing swallow, that's it. A man's face may be dirty, yet he can drink. He may be very unworthy in nature, but he can still swallow water to remove his thirst. Drinking is such a remarkable, easy thing. It is even more easy than eating. John 4, Jesus was talking to a woman at a well and and talking about water and all of this. And uh, he said, you know what? Woman, if you only knew who I was, if you knew who was speaking to you, you'd be asking me for a drink of water. And you know what? I would be giving you water that, that, that touches your heart and gives you eternal life. And she said, sir, I'm interested in that kind of water. <laughs> well, here's how we got the water, because there must be something powerful in that water. Because he said, if you drink this water, you get that city. You get a crown on your head. You get a throne to reign on. You're in the father's family. The father calls you his son or daughter. What's in that water? Well, I'll tell you what's in the water. When God's people in Exodus 17 were dying of thirst in the wilderness, they cried out for water. And God showed Moses a rock. And he said, Moses, go take your staff and go strike that rock. And he strikes the rock, and it bleeds in its injury out water. Everybody drinks. And he said, thank you for the sermon illustration, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, Paul says, that rock was Christ. We were all dying of thirst. And there's a picture a couple thousand years before of what God did to satisfy the longings of the eternal life longing for all of us. The Father took the rod of wrath and struck Jesus. And from his sword, from the side, through the sword, piercing his side, came water. That if you're willing, by faith, when you believe on Christ, you, you, you receive that water. And he says that wells up within you to give you new life. Jesus was struck by the wrath of God. The water flows from his side. By faith in Jesus, you become thirsty. You drink, you live, you're transformed, and you inherit all things. It's sad to say, not everyone thirsts for what God has or who God is. So heaven's also described here in your text about what's absent, what's not there. Crying, pain, mourning, sorrow, 
and unrepented sinners. And so you have a list, and listen, these are the kinds of lifestyles and things that people who don't have a thirst, that don't have belief in their heart, these are the, some of the ways they live. No one goes to hell because they've done something in the list. They go to hell because they've rejected Christ and his gospel, and these are the ways that that manifests to show that there's no life in them. And so here it is. Here's the list. You know, cowardly. Is cowardness enough to send a person to hell? Well, John isn't speaking about the natural timidity that we struggle with. He's talking about, and this is from commentator Morris, He's talking about a cowardice which in the last resort chooses self and safety before Christ. In other words, he's saying, heading the list of those who don't make it are fearful people. They're afraid of dying to self. They're afraid of taking a stand for Jesus Christ. They're afraid of losing their life for his sake, which is what we've all had to do. We've had to lose ourselves to find who we are in Christ. So he says, that's a problem. And now, as I've said here, some people aren't, they aren't damned because they murder or they're sexually immoral or any other particular sin you find in the list there. Uh, these are characteristics of an unregenerated heart that has shut God out. So some are aggressive in the list. Then you're like, yeah, obvious, murderers aren't going to heaven. And then right next door, you've got unbelievers, what? Parked right next door to a murderer or the sexually immoral rapist or whatever that means? How's that? Well, this is called passive aggressiveness. Unbelievers are more like passive aggressives. By all outward appearances, they may be upstanding citizens, but inwardly they are fierce. They ignore and hate God and are determined to neglect conscience, creation, testimonies, and the word of God, the prompting of the Holy Spirit. They have slammed the door shut in Jesus' face and killed God off while maintaining outward civility and common courtesies. Like the Pharisees who were outwardly really nice people, they perish as deservingly as the common thief or murderer. So be careful about that. The mild-mannered unbeliever finds his place in the list of the condemned. So unfortunately, the fiery lake comes up, the burning sulfur, the second death. The second death means that finally the soul and God are, are separated for eternity. That is called the second death. So what is it? How is it said? It said... If a man is born once, he dies twice. If a man is born twice, he dies once. You must be born again, Jesus said. And if you die having not been born again, you will die the second death. And that's what he's talking about here. Now, as far as that list goes, everyone in this room can find themselves somewhere in that list at one time in your life. Paul the Apostle said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11, he said, don't be deceived. Uh, the following people will not be going to heaven. 
These are people who do wrong. And then he makes the list. And then he says this. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. If you go back to those ways, perhaps you have not been washed or justified. To embrace sexual immorality, adultery, fornication, to, to live in that kind of thing just shows that perhaps there's not a connection with the new life. And so that is something to really take to heart. Well, we've got the city suspended, waiting to come down from heaven. We'll just take the whole block, make a few comments, okay? It kind of speaks for itself. Uh, Verses 9 through 21. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, so we don't know which one, but one of those angels came and said, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carries me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, here it comes, that's the father's house, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, and commentators say picture a diamond, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, And with 12 angels at the gates, and on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be anywhere between 13 and 1500 miles. All right. That's we're going to go with the bigger since it's heaven. You know, I don't think God would mind. We just side with the larger 1500 miles. I've done the math for you in length. And as wide as high, as wide and high as it is long, he measured it. He measured its walls, and it was two hundred and sixteen feet thick by man's measurement, with the angel, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper, and the city was pure gold, as pure as glass. So there's just a lot of refraction and reflection. Nineteen. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, and I'm going to do my best to give you the color of the gemstone. Some of the names from ancient days have changed a little bit, and some of the gemstones have various colors, but I picked my favorites. All right, here we go. (laughs) The first foundation's jasper, like a sparkling fat diamond. The, the, The second, sapphire, insane blue. The third, chalcedony, blinding crystal. The fourth, emerald, screaming green. (laughs) The fifth, sardonyx. It's kind of a kaleidoscope of lots of color. The sixth, carnelian. It's kind of sassy pinks and reds. (laughs) Uh, How many of you want to live in that zone? (laughs) 
I thought so, Rose. You are sassy. <laughs> Moving on. The seventh, crystal light. No, just kidding. Crystal light. <laughs> the seventh, crystal light. It is a luscious lime green gemstone. The eighth, barrel. It's kind of a happy, mellow yellow. The ninth, topaz. Summer, sky blue. The tenth, chrysoprase. I call this yummy apple green. The eleventh is jacinth. It's a reddish, festive orange. And the twelfth, amethyst, killer purple. All right, the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. Okay, so we saw the new heaven and earth, and we heard the same old invitation and warning, and now we see the beauty of the physical city. Well, we only got a few minutes, but here's what comes to me. Safety, security, permanence, protection, privilege, staggering beauty, blinding brilliance, excitement and sparkle pizzazz, exquisite, unparalleled value, transparency and light, and my final word, wow. This is a, this is a, a wow. Uh, verse 9, the city itself is called the bride, and we have a problem because we're called the bride. So commentators say, well, maybe it's because we're in the city as it descends, and so that's why it's called the bride, or God doesn't see much of a distinction between the city where his people live and the actual city, do you see? Because what is a city? Is it the buildings? Is it the wall with all that? Or is it us, the people in the city? You know, who may, you know what New York City is? It's not the Empire State Building. It's Vito. It's Vito. You want to get a cup of coffee with me? That's, who, that's New York City, man. It's the people. It's not the places. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Tough crowd this morning. It's Palm Sunday. Give me a break. <clears throat> Verse 15, when the measuring rod comes out, we're inclined to take things literally, all right? And, and let me just say this, 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles is like the moon, and if a road of gold goes through it, they say there are 8 million roads that would go off of that road, given that space. And so it is just a large area that's hard to uh, understand. Verse 11 says the gates and the angels are standing there. Well, they're not defending or guarding because there's nothing to guard against, uh, but they're welcoming. They're welcoming. I'm sure that they, they, uh, they change their positions regularly. I think of them as greeters, you know, because I'm a pastor and I just see them that way. You know, maybe I walk up to him and say, you know what, I've got a lot of questions for Noah. Could you point me in his direction? <laughs> sure, man. Come on down here. I'll show you exactly where he is. I'll, you know what? I always wanted to talk to Elijah and that fire thing. Well, you know what? I just saw him. He's right over me, over there. You know, maybe that's a, they're the information center. I don't know. <laughs> or maybe you'll go up to one and say, I'm looking for my dad. Looking for my dad. And he'll say, I know right where to find him. In fact, he's been waiting for you. 
the 12 tribes, the names, are on the gates. Now that's interesting because through Abraham and his seed, the gospel came and that Israel was the open door for the whole Gentile world to come in. And so that's so fitting that their names are there. And I I think I know why the gates are made of pearl. One big pearl for a gate. This is incredible. I mean, is it, I mean, seriously, if the wall is 1,500 miles high, how, how, how tall is the gate? That's a mighty big oyster. <laughs> why, why are they made out of pearl? The oyster is an answer to the, to, the pearl is an answer to the oyster's pain. There's something in the flesh, a wound, an irritant. And from that wound or irritant comes something precious and valuable. And Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. And he was wounded in his flesh. And the answer to that wound was our precious pearl of great price. That we enter the gate through a pearl. Something that came at, a, at an irritation, at a wound. A Romans 8.28 should be on top of that pearl. That, that, in fact, the thing that brought you to life. What brought you to life? It was an irritant of some sort. It was an emptiness. It was a disease. It was a, a pang of fear or guilt or something got into you and was like bugging you and you couldn't get rid of it and the Holy Spirit just started to calcify that thing and brought you to faith and now you have this precious faith in God and every time you go in and out you're like thankful for the great suffering not only in your own heart and life that brought you there but in the Lord's life that brought you there. And these are just some of the things I'm thinking about the 12 names of the apostles on the foundation come on Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So he, so he puts, and notice John's modesty. He didn't say he saw his name. His name is on heaven's foundations. But he didn't say, oh, yeah, and I saw my name. He's very modest. He didn't, in his gospel, he says, hey, the one Jesus loved. You know, it doesn't sound like he's being modest there, like he's, like I, like Jesus really loved him more than everybody else. But it was kind of humility, like Jesus even loves me. Now, he wasn't modest when he told about who beat who to the tomb. Uh, He did let us know that he beat Peter to the tomb. (laughs) So... But he didn't tell us what he saw. So the foundation of the gospel that we all came to know was built on who? Those 12 names. And whether that's Matthias number 12 or the Apostle Paul, you know what? We'll, we'll see because we're going to be standing there if we know the Lord. And so really, the capital city of heaven, somebody came up to me and was saying, you know what that means? It means that if there are three gates on each side that... The gemstone is 375 miles long in between the gates of the foundation. So the foundation for the gates is a 
mile emerald. Now, ladies, calm yourselves. <laughs> Seriously, I saw the look. Barbara? <laughs> no. <laughs> yes to the city. No to catch up now. You know, you'll enjoy it so much better there. Okay. What a blessing. You know, this is the sight that your eyes were created to see. The sounds that you're going to hear, that's what an ear was made to, to hear. God, this is a place where God says, this is my way now. This is how I wanted it. That's why it's a brand new earth and a brand new heavens. This is the way I want it. This is, the, this is in my mind. And, and I did not see a temple that's finished up in the city because the Lord God Almighty and, and Jesus are his temple. Uh, the city doesn't need sun, moon, or stars to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor to it. Uh, the gates are never shut. For there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure, and there he goes again. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And, and, and so we see the glory of the character of the city now. And just a couple things to notice here. John says, well, I didn't see any temple. Where's the church? I see this whole city. I see a lot of different things. Check, check, check. He didn't tell us about it all. We'll see next chapter. There's a lot of stuff in there. But he said, one thing I didn't see, where's the church? Where's the temple? To an ancient mind like John's, to have a city with no temple? Is like to say to you, I saw a city, and there was no post office, no bank, no mall. What? Especially the mall part. <laughs> well, he's there. there. There isn't even, there isn't a temple, there's no altar, there's no memorial sacrifices, there are no more sacrifices. I like what one, one guy said. He said, this reminds us that the heaven will be a place of pure worship just being with the Lord. Uh, the things we used to, to use to help us to worship often end up distracting us from worship, like buildings, sound systems, no, no offense, <laughs> customs, and so forth. Uh, those will no longer be an issue. Our focus will be totally on the person we worship, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And no need of sun or moon or stars. No night light. We don't need it. Why? Well, come on. The walls are glass. The city looks like a diamond. The foundation stones are precious gems. Everything is made in that place to reflect or refract light. And then you take Jesus, the light of the world, and plug him in the center of that kind of structure. Yeah, we don't need the sun. <laughs> And we don't need the moon. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And when God created in Genesis, he did say, let there be light before the stars and the sun were created. Because he is the light. He doesn't need a little ball of fire, please. It's, it comes from his face. 
and his being. And so there's no daytime or nighttime. Well, what, how do we mark time? Well, I don't know. <laughs> it's going to be fun. It's going to be perfect. Well, what are we doing? Uh, we have an earth there, and it's encouraging to hear that not everyone perished in the uprising in the millennial kingdom because the nations are still around. And they're bringing honor to the hub of heaven. I call it kind of the hub because heaven is like a big deal, you see. So we see that that still life is going on here. And then the last part, the warning, always, 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 always the warning. Please don't forget, nothing impure. If if you're living an impure life and you're reading this, just scratch your name right off the list because you're not coming in. That's what it, it says. Nothing impure, deceitful, or shameful. Are, are you really involved in something shameful and you don't even care about it? He says, that, oh, you, this is not for you. This is for somebody who thirsts for righteousness, not living in shame. So he just, he just throws that out there because he wants people to come to him and enjoy life, but he wants them to know the exhortation warns present present readers that the only way to participate in the future city is to turn one's loyalties to Jesus now. That's what he wants. So here's my uh, reflection on this wonderful chapter. There are just four little shout outs. Number one, the current earth and its solar system is headed for the cosmic scrap pile. So this calls for Continual reassessment of where I put my hope, my priorities, my values, my time and effort, my true citizenship is not on this earth. Number two, the heavenly city comes down from heaven and the Lord Jesus makes it as simple as an invitation to the thirsty. So this calls to me to remind me to have a continuing awareness of what my longings and my desires and my thirsts are. Am I drinking from the well of salvation? Am I thirsting for God? Do I qualify for this city by being thirsty and drinking from the well of salvation? Or do I get my thirst quenched in from the well of the poisonous world? Number three, since the heavenly city is eternally closed to those who close themselves off to the Lord, his gospel and his love. This calls for an impassioned effort on our part to reach those who are lost with the gospel, to pray, to love, to reach out to people. Jude said, we need to be snatching people from the fires. We just read their destiny. We just saw our destiny that's glorious. How self-centered of it would be of us to say, oh, goody, all for me. None for you, because you're an unbeliever. No, prayer, reaching out. As Spurgeon said, if they must go to hell, let them go jumping over our dead bodies with uh, our hands clasped about their knees, with tears running down of our face, with our throat parched with exhortations. Please don't go. Let us care. And then finally, since the place Jesus has prepared for us is the place the Father is, our home, along with those who we loved, who knew Jesus, 
and it's filled with everlasting joy that displaces all of our sorrows. This calls for me and you to be encouraged. We must comfort ourselves with the truth and the reality that this city waits for us and the one inside this city waiting who will touch our faces with his hands and fill our hearts with his great joy. Let's pray together. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love. Pray, Father, that you would take these hard-to-express truths and apply them by your Holy Spirit so that we can be encouraged. In Christ's name, amen.